What we imagine Jesus would do is oftentimes not at all what Jesus did. Um, when people would look at those bracelets and you see, what would Jesus do? They didn't think themselves. He would tell someone to let his dead father bury his himself. You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou... The, um, do you remember those little silicon bands that they were selling the bracelets for a while um, that said WWJD on them? Do you remember those? And the, what would Jesus do, right? These were very, very popular when I started in youth ministry in the mid-90s. Um, the kids would collect them in every possible color. Some kids would come into youth group looking like they had like armored armbands because there's all the colors going up their arm and stuff like this. And... Um, one day, one of our real active kids, Alexis, said, um, you know, can I, uh, can I talk to you after youth group? And I said, sure. And she says, well, I, I, was, I, was, I was in the locker room after gym class. Uh-huh. And, um, and there were these, there was one of those WWJD bracelets in there on, uh, sitting on the bench. And I said, Yeah. She said, well, it was a color I didn't have. Okay. And, and I went to take it. And I thought, wait a minute. I can't steal a what would Jesus do bracelet. <laughs> I said, good thought. <laughs> she said, yeah. Those things really work. <laughs> and... Uh, I, I, I've, I've always thought of that story when I come to, to passages like today because what we imagine Jesus would do is oftentimes not at all what Jesus did. Um, when people would look at those bracelets and you see what would Jesus do, they didn't think themselves. He would tell someone to let his dead father bury his himself. Uh, <laughs> um, this is one of those days that the passage from the gospel is filled with what they call the hard sayings of Jesus. When it can feel a little ironic at the end of the of the reading when I say the gospel of the Lord, which means the good news of the Lord, but it hasn't felt very good while He's been laying it on us. Um, so what I'm going to do is go through the things that Jesus says today in sort of in reverse order um, because they, they do kind of build. Um, but we're going to go in reverse order on them to, to go backwards to where it starts from. Um, in our, the last thing that happens is uh, a gentleman says to Jesus as he's walking toward Jerusalem, he's set his face to Jerusalem, so his purpose is to go there. And someone says to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, every good Jew knew the story of Elijah. He's the most important prophet of the Old Testament. It's why he shows up at Jesus' transfiguration. You get Moses and Elijah. Everyone knew Elijah's story, frontward and backward. So when Jesus starts talking about a plow, when this young man uh, says about going back home to say goodbye to his family, it's going to immediately bring the story of Elijah to his mind. 
Um, and uh, what Jesus is saying to him, the commission I'm on, the commission you would be joining in with, is even more important than what Elisha had to do. Because Elijah let Elisha go back and say goodbye to his family. In fact, let him go back and have a barbecue, right? He prepares the ox and cooks up himself, shares it with, the, with all the surrounding neighbors and everything. Um, Jesus is saying, what I, the, the work I'm doing is so important. If you're going to follow me, you got to, right now, now's the time. Now want to stay focused. Um, and focus is important if you're, if you're plowing. Uh, my children work in a 19th century farm uh, they're as, as interpreters, and they know how the old manual plows work. They've seen other people do it. I don't think either of them have actually gotten the fields to do this, but whether it's the kind you're doing yourself or you're, you're doing all the muscle work or whether you've got an animal leading you, it's real important to keep your eyes on what you're doing at all times. Because um, the same way that if you, you, know, you spend a little too much time looking at your left or your right rearview mirrors, your car will tend to drift that direction. It's exactly what happens while you're plowing, if you're not paying strict attention to what you're doing. Um, you know, drawing a straight line, essentially, with a plow that's hitting all kinds of stones and stuff like this is a hard thing to do over a run of 100 or 200 yards. Um, it's even harder if you've got an animal, because here's, here's some news. The animal has plans of his own. <laughs> And they don't include walking in straight lines all day long. <laughs> You're going to have to fight that animal to get him to do the work for you. So Jesus is saying, stay focused on, on what you're doing if you're going to join in with what I'm doing. Now, going back before that, this time Jesus had said to somebody, follow me. So he picked out a bystander and said, follow me. Just like he said to the disciples earlier, Peter and John and James. Um, Peter and Andrew in particular at their, at their boats when they're fishing. And the person he says, follow me to, responds, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, um, there's some backstory here which helps us contextualize what Jesus is saying. In the world that Jesus lived in, a Jew who had had a parent pass away was not out in public for Jesus to look at them and say, you, follow me. The first week after a, a parent died, the family was together in their domicile um, and engaged in the first week of rituals that followed the death of an important family member. So the fact that that person was standing there for Jesus to say, come follow me, meant he had already buried his father. And that what this person was doing was putting Jesus off, in a sense. Um, the responsibility they would have had would have been a year after the first burial, the oldest son's job was to go and exhume the body of the dead parent because the flesh had all rotted away, take the bones and put them in what was called a bone box and put that, put that box into a sconce in the temple. So that would have been their job. So this person's saying, I'll follow you. Can you give me about a year? And once again, Jesus refuses him. Jesus is saying, no, now's the time. The mission we're on is important. Now is the time. And when you think about it, what time do we have but right now to follow Jesus? I, had, I have plans for the entire week. Tonight, Sunday nights, I make my plans for the entire week ahead. And I guarantee you, by Monday afternoon, my, week, my plans for the week are shot. <laughs> 
Something always happens that I didn't expect and throws everything off. So my plans are just good intentions. What I do right now is what I'm doing. So if you're going to follow Jesus, now is the time to do it. And Jesus is emphasizing that in his response. And finally, before that, as they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now this is especially poignant because right before this in the Gospel of Luke, he does refer to someone as a fox. King Herod. Foxes have holes. This king, opposed to to the will of God, has a palace to live in. God's own anointed, the Son of Man, and that's a title that comes out of the vision in Daniel, has no place to lay his head. This world's rejecting me. So, here's the reality, is that the person who's saying, I'll follow wherever you go, and that sounds a lot like Peter on the night when Jesus is betrayed, right? (laughs) Um, Jesus is essentially responding to him, there's no way you can go where I'm going. You can't do what I'm about to do. Because where we know he's going? He's headed to Jerusalem. That's how the story opens. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. And we know what's going to happen in Jerusalem is going to be the cross. He's going there to accomplish our salvation as the incarnate Son of God. And there's, if it was something we could do, he wouldn't need to do that. What he is setting out to do is what we cannot do for ourselves. The question that Christians should ask is not, what would Jesus do? The question that ought to be on every wristband is, what has Jesus done? When we cotton on to that, when we hold on to that reality and answer that question, that's, when, that's where faith comes from. That's where our sense of being drawn toward this Christ who alone can save us comes from. What has Jesus done? He has gone and done everything for us. In fact, back when those wristbands, the What Would Jesus Do wristbands were popular, um, it was fun. I took that youth group, um, and the young lady I told you the story about, her, there's a picture of her hanging on my wall in my office because I've got that whole youth group up there, um, took them to a youth event, and uh, the speaker was great. And he asked how many of them had those wristbands, and most of the kids you know, raised their arms with the wristbands. And... Uh, And the speaker said, well, he said, you want to know what Jesus would do? He'd be born of a virgin. And then he'd live a sinless life. And then he would die as a criminal for a crime he didn't commit. And then he would go to hell so he could preach to the spirits in prison. That's 1 Peter 3.19. And then he would rise from the dead. You want to try and do what Jesus did, you go right ahead. (laughs) What would what has Jesus done? He has done all of those things for us. And once we answer that question, then a new question arises. Is what will we do for Jesus? And specifically, what is he calling us to do for him right now? All of Jesus' hard sayings in today's gospel reading point us to the fact that we need to respond to him right now. And asking the question of what he wants us to do right now is something too few Christians do. Moment to moment, day to day, some of us ever. And answering that question is what discipleship is all about. 
It's what makes grace more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's what calls us to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as costly grace. I'm going to read to you um, a section of something Dr. Bonhoeffer wrote. Um, Last week, um, Paul Grube, our president of council, and I attended the first... Uh, convocation of the Atlantic Mission region. We've been reorganized. This is the first time we've ever met as a group. And our bishop, who is finished with his term in office in August, um, spoke to us. And uh, he's doing this all over the country. This is, the, this is his sort of last hurrah swan song. He wants to get us all on the same page as he leaves office. And so this is a whole focus for our denomination, is discipleship. And he, as soon as he started into this passage, I recognized it instantly. I pulled it up on my Kindle and showed it to Paul. You know. So um, I want to read to you what our bishop read, read to us. Um, it's, it's kind of a longish quote. It takes about five minutes to read, so uh, I'll try to keep it interesting. Um, but it's, it's a marvelous beginning to Pastor Bonhoeffer's book The Cost of Discipleship. And here's what he writes. He writes, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wears. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut-rate prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury, from which she showers blessings with generous hands, without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace means grace is a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to that idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. The church which holds the correct doctrine of grace has, it is supposed, an ipso facto a part in that grace. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living Word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the Word of God. And that's his point, is that too often grace is preached or taught apart from Jesus himself. And Jesus is the only means by which we receive the grace of God. Dr. Bonhoeffer goes on, Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. The world goes on in the same old way, and we are still sinners, even in the best life, as Luther said. And here's where Pastor Bonhoeffer gets, frankly, a little sarcastic. Um, Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. 
was the heresy of the enthusiasts, the Anabaptists, and their kind. Let the Christian beware of rebelling against the free and boundless grace of God and desecrating it. Let him not attempt to erect a new religion of the letter by endeavoring to live a life of obedience to the commandments of Jesus Christ. The world has been justified by grace. The Christian knows that and takes it seriously. He knows he must not strive against this indispensable grace. Therefore, let him live like the rest of the world. Of course, he'd like to go and do something extraordinary, and it does demand a good deal of self-restraint to refrain from the attempt and content himself with living as the world lives. Yet it is imperative for the Christian to do so. Let the Christian rest content with his worldliness and with his renunciation of any higher standard than the world. He's doing it for the sake of the world rather than for the sake of grace. Let him be comforted and rest assured in his possession of this grace, for grace alone does everything. Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolations of his grace. That is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the bondage of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field, For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of His Son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. I certainly find those words convicting. And before I feel like Pastor Bonhoeffer's been too hard on me or us, um, I realize what his words cost himself. 
He took his own words so seriously that he gave up a cushy, safe job as a professor here in the United States in the build-up to World War II to return to his own native Germany and lead an underground seminary in an underground church, the Confessing Church, because the state church had been infiltrated by the Nazis. And he suffered in that church, he struggled in that church, eventually helping the the German underground, and finally he got engaged in a plot to um, assassinate Adolf Hitler and rid the world of the evil that his country, his homeland, was was inflicting on the rest of the world. Um, Because that's what he believed Jesus wanted him to do now. Even though he was a pacifist by nature, he responded to the call of Jesus, and that cost him his life. He died as a a martyr in Buchenwald prison because of it. This call to respond to Jesus now, to realize what Jesus has done, and then say, what does he want me to do now as a response? That is the call of Jesus in each of our lives, personally and individually, and I can't answer the question for you what he wants you to do now, but I know he's asking you to do something now because we're all of us still upright and breathing. We're part of the church militant, not the church triumphant. There's a battle to be fought. Um, And it's a battle to bring that costly grace more deeply to ourselves, to those immediately around us, and to the world. To learn how to live more faithfully as a, a spouse, as a father, a mother, a son or a daughter, as a married person or a single person. Each of us has an an answer to that, a way to apply our lives more faithfully. And so we have to answer that question of how to apply our faith more faithfully to all the parts of our lives. And we need to answer better than just what we're doing right now. Because each of us has room to grow. I know there's more for each of us to do. Um, And there's new challenges in front of us every day as to how we can apply that grace in our lives and learn how to be a more faithful, a better father, mother, son, daughter, co-worker, friend. There's a way we need to learn to get more deeply in the Word and let the Word get more deeply in us so we can more faithfully live in those roles as people called and redeemed by Jesus. Because His grace isn't cheap. It's free. And it sets us free when we learn to live according to the Spirit, as St. Paul tells us today in Galatians. Will you join me for a word of prayer now? Lord, we do pray that you would help us to live not according to the flesh, not according to the world, but according to the Spirit, which we've been called to live in through the Gospel. That costly, costly gospel which cost you your life that we might be given life. Lord, you're calling us now to do something, to respond in some new way, to learn to think more Christianly, behave more Christianly in some aspect of our lives. Help us, Lord, to hear your call and respond to it right now. 
to keep our minds focused on that plow and, and focused upon you who will teach us to plow straight. Help us to respond to your gracious call in our lives and pour out that costly grace upon those around us. Make us your conduit, O Lord, and your servants and sons and daughters. And these things we ask in your precious name, which is forever Jesus the Christ. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my life.